Welcome to another Lamentations of the Flame Princess campaign diary. So, I've played in a fair few games where GMs hand wave downtime. Basically, once you get to town, if you want a sword, you get a sword. That kind of thing. Downtime to these kind of GMs is boring, unnecessary, and gets in the way of a good adventure. And that's fine, but for me, downtime, the things you do in the town when returning from an adventure, it's an important part of the game. Some of the best things happen when the characters are attempting to act like normal people. And today's episode, I think, demonstrates why I enjoy downtime so much and how things can go from bad to worse in an instant. So this is The Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Episode 4, Royal Grumble. So last game, the characters had just been to Deathfrost Mountain, an unnatural cold had recently caused Donvey City's vineyards to become ruined, black and withered, and Gunlit, Nico, Killin and Luther believed that the mountain was something to do with it. So taking the initiative, they clomb the mountain, conquered the labyrinth held within, and killed a strange spider woman who resided inside. She was protecting a huge dinner plate sized black lens. Bringing the lens down the mountain, along with many treasures they found in Deathross Mountain, the heroes all arrive back at the gates of Dolmvay. They are tired, battered, bruised and bloody. The gates of the city are closed and flanked by two armoured guards with guns. A few more snipers and crossbowmen line the city walls also. A guard in plate, wielding a musket, steps forward and addresses the party. Come on, cough up, time to pay your taxes. A bloody and beaten gunlet steps forward, his thick fur caked in blood. What tax? We, we don't know about any tax. The guard pulls a writ of some kind from his belt and begins to read. Thou shalt give half thy income to charity, or thou shalt have no income. While Luther, exasperated, hands over half his coin, 25 silver pieces, the rest of the heroes are obviously reluctant to pay the tax. So, Nico, employing some fancy sleight-of-hand trickery, quickly slips a gold coin into his greasy, matted hair, then hands over half of his silver pieces. Gunlit tells the guard that Luther's 25 silver pieces, and Nico's fistful of coin, is all that they have. This is a lie. Look, the guard speaks up, lifting the visor on his helm. I ate the tax just as much as you do. I got kids back home, and do you think I can feed them easily with half me wages? No bloody way, so let's just get this over with. No, it's true, Gunlet responds. That's all we got, honestly. I know that ain't the case, mate. You adventuring grave robbing types always come back with stacks of coin. Why else would you risk your lives exploring tombs and caves and shit? Just cough up the cash before we have to get serious. Gunlet continues to talk in an attempt to distract the guard away from what he's doing with his hands. He's getting a gold coin from his purse and slipping it into his underwear. Fortunately for him, he does this effortlessly. The whole time he natters on about the tax being unfair, the guard looks him in the eyes. Gunlit 
then hands over half of his silver too. While this conversation was occurring, Killen was busy attempting another, similar trick. He takes his bloated coin purse quietly from his pocket and, pretending to stretch, he attempts to drop it into his quiver. Sadly, during the process, the ties on the purse had become loose, and now Killen stands in full view of the guard, accidentally pouring a mass of coins all down his back and onto the floor. It takes some time, too. As the coins pour and pour, the guard stares at him angrily in the face as Killen stares back nervously. Eventually, after a good ten seconds of coins dropping out of Killen's hands and onto the grass, the guard simply says, Right, I'm gonna have to take half of that. Killen nods, dejectedly, and begins to scoop his money up before giving half to the guard. They are then permitted access to the city. Entering Dolmvay and returning to the winding cobbled streets and brown dingy architecture, the team then discuss what they must do next. Firstly, there's the fight coming up. Gunlet had previously promised to a grub breeder to fight 25 poisonous grubs in an illegal rumble in the frigid cousin pub. In order to change the date and give themselves time to conquer Deathfrost Mountain, the party did promise, however, to supply this event with three barrels of wine. They do not have three barrels of wine, and additionally, there is a wine shortage currently in Dolmvay. Although they believe they have solved the problem with the city's vineyards, wine right now will be difficult to obtain. So they discuss the possibility of asking Lord Alfin, the region's ruler, for three barrels, hoping that he'll be happy to hand it over considering what a great job they've done. Deciding there's no better option, they head north and go to Castle Alfin, although Luther is unable to join them. He is too battered from his time up Deathfrost Mountain, so he slopes off, head hanging low, to the hospital to rest his old wizard bones. On their way to Castle Alfin, they make sure to go past the vineyard. Checking the soil, Gunlet sees that it is no longer freezing to the touch. It is about an hour past midnight at this point, and as the heroes drag their feet over the streets towards the castle, they feel an overwhelming sense of exhaustion and a need for a drink. Nonetheless, with the low energy that they can muster, they do manage to slump themselves back over to Castle Alfin. Upon arrival, they are immediately let inside. Two long bands of single-file guards flank them on either side as they walk through the courtyard and to the throne room. The room is as cold and as gigantic and empty as ever. The throne atop the dais, however, is empty. A pair of guards stand adjacent to it and tell the heroes that the king is asleep. But nevertheless, Gunlit bades one of the guards to wake Lord Alfin and bring him downstairs. Killin chimes in and tells the guard that Alfin will want to hear the news, so reluctantly, the guard slinks off and after some time he returns with Lord Alfin. Alfin is wearing a thick fur dressing gown as he enters the room sluggishly, yawning and stretching. What is it? He says tiredly. I was asleep, you know. The team tell him about their exploits atop the mountain, tell him about the spider woman and how they destroyed her and they mention the soil and the vineyards and how it appears to have recovered. Then they show him the lens. Upon showing Alfin the large black lens, his eyes widen while his expression drops to a saddened, frightened look of horror. Th th that, that lens! His voice starts trembling. I, I, um... He is having trouble articulating something as he rubs his beard nervously. Look. I must admit something to you. The war with Morden and his barbarians, well, 
You know how we are unsure of his reasons for starting it. You are fully aware of his reasons for starting it? Killin pipes in. Yes. You see, many, many years ago, this land was overrun with a huge clan of wizards devoted to the Great Chaos Serpent. They were relentless, brutal, and attacked with barbaric intent. They sacked villages, took over entire cities, and their numbers grew as they enslaved more and more men, women, and children, forcing them to fight. This ever-growing army brutalized anyone who opposed them. That was until the problem became so widespread that my grandfather, King Alphen V, was forced to go to war with the clan. He hit back as hard as he could, devoted every second of his time and every penny in the budget to ensure the sorcerer clan's demise. And before too long, the enemy leaders were in the dungeons below the castle. Alfinland now bore many permanent scars though, and the ruined townships were innumerable, and the hell that Alfinland's people had to endure left a great many citizens permanently injured or dead. And so, my grandfather made these lenses, three of them, each representing the great snakes. A black one for the Chaos Serpent, a red lens, the lens of fire, the element of justice, for the Justice Serpent obviously, and lastly, a lens which shifted colours. This was the lens of the Great Earth Serpent, the Serpent of Neutrality. The historic records often talk of it being blue, but other accounts recall it being brown or green. When used in conjunction, these lenses may be used to send matter to another plane of existence, which is exactly what King Alfin V did. To teach the murderous sorcerers a lesson, he sent them to the plane of elemental chaos, a plane located across the far reaches of the elemental planes, where the elements dissolve into a mix of colliding energies, a place where the sorcerers would learn what a world governed by a chaos would really look like. Anyway, the most important detail is this. Among the ranks of the evil wizards was Mordin's grandfather, and it seemed that Mordin has found a way to escape the plane of elemental chaos and seeks to finish what his forebearers started. Alfin goes on to tell the heroes that he believes that Morden wishes to use the lenses to send his kidnapped daughter Xenia, the Flame Princess, to the plane of elemental chaos. He bades the party for help, saying that they can either attack Moor directly and kill Morden, or they can try to find the remaining lenses before Morden's army does. But there's only four of us! Gunlet expresses his concern. Wouldn't it make more sense to send one of your armies? While you raise a good point, Alfin replies, I believe that you four are more likely to go undetected. An army would not go unseen entering the city of Moor. Morden's army has patrols spanning the country looking for signs of an attack, but they will not be looking for a party of four unassuming adventurers. And with that, the party agree to help. It is at this point everyone in Alfin's throne room hears the sound of trumpets, some kind of fanfare, and rolling through the courtyard they see two fine, expensive-looking wagons. Atop the first stands Commander Blackthorn. He smiles smugly, his nose in the air as usual. He is waving at the courtyard guards like a royal. The rear wagon has a band of trumpeteers on the back along with a few drummers. They play a boisterous melody which ushers the self-important Blackthorn through the castle grounds and then the party see him dismount and begin to decant wine for all the guards from many large barrels which sit on the back of both wagons, along with their passengers. Now, although the party had solved the wine problem in the long term, it seems that Blackthorn has, from somewhere, acquired an impressive stock of wine, and worst of all, he was being treated like the real hero. Gunlet, with some quick thinking, immediately begins to lie to Lord Alfin. Ta-da! He starts, we were working alongside Blackthorn. We thought we'd surprise you with a lovely gift. Wine and bloody loads of it. 
Alfin's eyes begin to sparkle like jewels. Not taking his eye off the celebrations in the courtyard, he hugs Gunlet, Nico, and Killen, holding them tight. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, you beautiful boys. You saved my reputation. Killen then adds in, yes, and we were quite hoping to take a few of these barrels to a party tonight. Oh, please do. You men are true heroes. You deserve it. Now, go and address your adoring public. Hurriedly, Nico and Gunlet head to the courtyard and address the merry guards as they all swill the wine. Yes, men, drink and be happy, for we are the bringers of wine. No! Lord Blackthorn, a panicked look on his one-eyed face starts to speak over the uproarious cheering, but he's cut off by Gunlet. Yeah, this is for you lot, and the great efforts you make in keeping our city safe. Well done, you brave men. Blackthorn replies. Nico and Gunlet can see him shouting, attempting to address the courtyard, but he is unable to be heard over all the cheering. He jumps down from his perch atop the wagon and stomps angrily towards the top of the stairs where Nico and Gunlet stand. You bastard whore sons, he starts. Sorry, mate, I, c I can't hear you. They're all cheering very loudly. This is all that Blackthorn can manage in reply as he grumbles past Nico and Gunlet towards Alfin's throne. Killin, still at the throne, is in discussion with Alfin. He is given 5,000 silver pieces for a fine job well done and is granted access to a few wine barrels for the fight later on. He then walks casually towards the castle's entrance and as he nears Blackthorn, he trips him over, mid-stride. It is expertly done. Killin, making it look like an accident, leans down pretending to help Blackthorn up but whispers, Job well done. You must be very happy. Oh, I'll kill you, you bastards! Blackthorn is furious. He picks himself up, untangling his black cape, and continues towards the throne. The team then leave to begin preparations for Gunlit's grub fight. As they do so, they are showered with cheers, pats on the back, and hugs from the procession of guards in the courtyard. Nico and Killen spend the rest of the night acquiring goods and, and attempting to manipulate the odds of the fight. Gunlet is to fight 25 arm-sized poisonous grubs by himself in exchange for a prize-winning pedigree grub. The team all begin to realise that he'll die fighting that many and so they send Gunlet away to rest and regain his strength while Nico and Killen buy new equipment, armour and potions to restore Gunlet to his fighting fitness. They then attempt to find out where the grubs are kept when they aren't fighting. They once again go to the Frigid Cousin pub, and asking around slyly with some of the locals, they're given a location, Lowtown, a street in the far south called Muck Street, a house with a red door. It's a short walk from the pub, and clear as day, the house they need is obvious. Its red, cracked, peeling paint on the door makes it stand out from the rest of the bland, grimy homes that line the fractured cobble streets. While Nico looks out, Killing climbs onto the roof and into the back garden of the home. Under the cover of night, he manages this deftly, barely making a sound save for the thunk of his grappling hook onto the roof. But fortunately, this doesn't appear to have been enough to wake up the locals. Killen drops down to the tall, overgrown garden and sees that under a badly built ramshackle awning, there are cages and cages of sleeping purple grubs. Working quickly, he pulls out his rapier and stabs viciously into the cages. Viscous green blood blobs down into the other cages and onto the ground. Killin leaves only seven alive. 
All the while, Nico just stands outside on Muck Street, keeping watch, looking to see if any pairs of curtains in windows are suddenly pulled apart, or if candles are illuminated. He sees no such thing, but continues to remain vigilant. And at that moment, Nico is shocked by a loud thud behind him. It's Killen coming back down the front of the house. Killen temporarily loses his footing, and his clumsy feet make loud wooden clunks as they scramble for purchase. Nico quickly turns his gaze back to the houses on the street and sees many windows illuminate as candles are lit. It's only a matter of time, thinks he, before the curtains are drawn and they are rumbled. So, running a few houses down, Nico begins to act like a common drunkard, singing a loud, obnoxious sea shanty and falling into the fronts of homes, an attempt to disguise the bangs and bumps of Killen as simply the workings of a street lout. It's not long before Nico sights disapproving gazes at the windows, and all the woken residents simply draw their curtains and return to sleep. With that, Killin drops to the ground, unhooks his grappling hook from the roof of the grub house, and the pair of them run back to Castle Elfin, where they've been permitted to sleep for the night. The next day, after suiting Gunlet up in plate mail and plying him with healing potions, they're ready for the fight. There's now less opponents, Gunlet is armoured like a tank, and he's feeling fighting fit. So they head out of Castle Alfin, through the northern parts of town, the posh areas, and down south back into Lowtown. Approaching the frigid cousin, they hear the sounds of many people chatting from within. It sounds even more packed than usual, the sounds of every patron trying to speak over one another spills out onto the streets. Gunlet takes a deep breath, and pushes the doors open. His ears are assaulted by the sudden upstart of music. A small band of musicians have been hired and play in one corner. The crowd parts, and silence washes over them, as Gunlet trudges heavily in his armour towards a chalk outline of a fighting ring in the centre of the pub. He feels many audience members patting his back, rubbing his head, and on arrival at the ring, there is a loud cheer from every single person in the pub. The owner of all the grubs, or as he is known, the Grubfather, climbs atop a table and begins to announce the match. He attempts to save face. The posters said Gunlet would be fighting 25 grubs, but as Gunlet, Nico, and Killen are aware, he only has seven so the Grubfather announces it normally, as if nothing is wrong. He looks nervously at the crowd as he yells. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special one-time show. In one corner, we have Yikemysen, he points at Gunlet. In the other, we have seven of me biggest, most fearsome, poisonous grubs. Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets. The pub comes briefly frantic as last-minute bets are made, and then after a brief, tense silence, the grubs are released from their cages. They squirm towards the ring. The audience reels back, but continues to shout encouragement at whoever they've bet on. From somewhere in the pub, a bell rings. The grubs come out of the gate with a wild frenzy of attacks on Gunlet. He feels their poisonous barbs chinking on his armour one after the other. It sounds like a ferocious hail as they batter onto his plate. Gunlet holds his spear up and is buffeted onto his back foot by the flurry of blows raining down upon him. Just then, he feels a hot sensation in his neck, followed by a fierce burning mixed with abject pain. His eyes dart down to see a grub pulling its barbed stinger from his neck. Green liquid drops from the end. Gunlet, 
feeling instantly woozy, quickly reaches for a healing potion on his belt and quaffs the contents before throwing the vial aside. He feels ever so slightly better, managing to stay on his feet. He grips his spear with both hands and begins to jab wildly at the angry rabble of grubs. They swiftly curl and bend and Gunlet's attack is useless as he doesn't manage to hit a single one of them. Seeing how badly the fight is going, Nico starts to barge through the crowd, who respond with elbows and rude gestures as he fights his way through. He is aiming to get to the bar to find a towel to throw in, although the journey there is made difficult by the thickness of the crowds. The grubs let out, the grubs let out another furious wave of blows, razor-sharp bites and deadly stingers lash at Gunlit once again. Although most of them are unable to pierce his armour, the obvious weak spot remains. Gunlet takes another poison stinger to the neck. Pints of blood gush out of the deep hole in Gunlet's lower neck as the barbed stinger is removed. He begins to sway and feel an acute dizziness as he, this time, swipes his spear in a circle attempting to lash as many as he can, but it's not enough. While one of them takes a small slash in its leathery skin, the grubs remain strong and begin to clump up in front of him, ready to kill. Gunlet, seeing no other option, drops his spear and pulls out a matchbox and some oil. With Killen at the back of the crowd and Nico at the bar, they see what Gunlet has just readied and both shout, No! at the same time, but their cries are not heard. Gunlet smashes the oil in the middle of the grubs. A mad panic from the crowd immediately ensues. They know what's going to happen, and along with Killen, they leave without hesitation, clambering over one another to escape. Gunlet drops a flaming match onto the grubs. They scream and rise in the writhing flames, but with alarming quickness, the pub is dissected by a furious wall of fire, and Nico is on the other side, by the bar. Gunlet runs outside before truly realising what he's done. He sprints round to the alley and looking through the window he sees a frightened Nico with his arms and hair aflame desperately trying to use his cold fury sword to put the flames out. Sadly though, as Nico fans the flames with his sword it only makes it worse. His entire jacket is completely aflame. Gunlet jumps up trying to smash the window to give Nico an exit. Even over the flames Nico hears this and attempts the same. Both parties now bash on the window from either side, but while Gunlit is battered and Nico is on fire, they struggle to muster the strength. Nico faints, his body now completely ablaze, lies on the floor of the frigid cousin. With one final punch, Gunlit leans back and gives the window everything he's got, his hand bloody and scratched as he finally manages to destroy the glass. Diving in, he then runs behind the bar, finding a pot of dirty dishwater, and he splashes it onto Nico's body, which lies motionless. Then, with his last ounce of energy and a good helping of adrenaline, Gunlet drags Nico's body towards the window and manages to lift him out and onto the streets. Nico's face is burned black like tar, and his mullet is completely gone. His clothes are ashen, full of holes, and almost utterly ruined. But Nico coughs up a cloud of ash and rouses from unconsciousness, bits of his skin melting away even still. He is just barely alive, barely able to move. But as Killen looks on nervously at the other two in the alley, he yells, Come! We must go! Give it legs! And so, on the brink of death, they three hobble away as fast as they can from the flaming pub as its roof caves in, falling into the fire. So that is the end of another episode of the campaign diary. A uh, slightly shorter one I think. Um as you can see things got pretty fucking mental at the end there. It was 
insane insane i mean they they were desperately trying to win this grab fight and at the end of the game i spoke to ryan who plays gunlit and he said that he still won the fight technically and it was like well yeah you did but i doubt that you're going to get your payment for the fight from because you burnt it down you know you burnt the pub down so yeah it was a pretty nuts episode and this is just an example of you know what can happen as a result of downtime you know this is why i like having the guys actually play out what they do in the city you know it can be fun and things like this happen this is an aside to the main story i guess but but i think it's an important part in any case there was something i wanted to mention that i didn't put into the script for this episode and this is kind of an important detail the wine that blackthorn bought back that he was decanting to everyone had a very spicy taste to it it wasn't local and after the game the guys all poured over the map and they thought right what what kind of area might have spiced wine you know or, or hot fiery wine and they immediately turned their attention towards a uh, an area in the northeast called Moor and, and for those of you that are paying close attention you'll know that's where the barbarians come from and Morden the enemies of Alfin's army and so that's pretty much it. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, I've forgotten to do this on previous episodes, but please send us an email at 3trpgpod at gmail.com and we're on Facebook, MeWe, Twitter, all of that good stuff. And if you like this, sling us a buck on Patreon. We don't have any stuff, uh, any content that's behind a paywall, but uh, if you want to donate and just say, hey, I like this show, go over to Patreon and sling us a buck. And that will be it for another episode. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>